This is the Taz and Jim Podcast. It is November 11th, 2020, Remembrance Day. Welcome to the program, Ted Barris. He is a historian and author who has written... How many books have you written now, Ted? Well, I'm, uh, the 19th book is the one you're holding, the one that deals with uh, medics. Rush to Danger came out last year, and my 20th book is about uh, 80 to 90 percent done on the Battle of the Atlantic, which is a great big story. You've written books like Juno, Canadians at D-Day, Days of Victory, Victory at Vimy, Behind the Glory, Rush to Danger, The Great Escape, a Canadian Story, and you mentioned that your your newest book, it came out last year, Rush to Danger is about medics in the line of fire. Uh, why don't we start there? Because uh, medics, I mean, we've talked about the, the medical community here in this country being on the front lines over the past uh, eight, nine months with COVID-19. Yeah. Um, but it, there's medics who have truly been on the front lines throughout history, and this book honors them. It's really a tribute to that very odd and honorable instinct to go to the problem, not run away from it. Nurses and uh, ambi- first responders. Um, uh, my dad was a medic in the Second World War. We'll talk maybe a little bit about him in, in the American Army. But the book goes all the way back to the American Civil War and the birth of the first field ambulance in 1862. A man named Jonathan Letterman recognized that, and you probably have images in your head from any reading you have done in the Civil War, that the, the doctors were quacks. They were essentially going in to chop off limbs and barely save men in horrible conditions, and he changed that. And then I go right through um, the Boer War, the Great War, the Second World War, um, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, trying to get a sense of how medical uh, military medicine changed and how it saved more lives as time went on, given the tools at hand. But it doesn't take away from that, uh, that unknown quotient that you allude to at the beginning, and that is that these people were extraordinary and, and continued to be in the front-line situations, uh, not afraid of, of you know, putting themselves in harm's way and eager to help those who are. Well, I can remember speaking to my grandmother when she was still around about her time. She was a nurse here in Canada during World War II. Oh, really? And and you talk about the uh, the advances. She told me about penicillin. Yeah. When penicillin was invented, she's like, it was a miracle. You'd have guys coming back from the war who two weeks earlier, it would have been, you'd keep them comfortable till they died. And penicillin was introduced. She said it, it was a complete game changer. These guys would be back living their lives out of hospital within a week or two. And the amazing part of that miracle of medicine is to look to what had happened just prior to that. And you have to go back to a certain extent to the First World War. In my book, Rest of Danger, I profile a fascinating phenomenon. Somebody very wisely came up with the idea that if we took civilian hospital situations where you've got doctors and orderlies and assistants and surgeons and nurses and so on in a civilian situation, what if we just, this is again back to 1914, what if we just picked up all these people, plunked them on a boat, took them to England and then to France, and then set up a military hospital? Would it work? Well, they tried it with McGill, the teaching institution there. They took the doctors and they made them medical officers. They took the students who were orderlies and they made them the orderlies in the military hospital. And they took about 800 nurses. They took about uh, 2,000 people in all. 
picked them up in Montreal, plunked them on a ship, took them to England, plunked them down just inland from Boulogne and Etops in France, and established uh, a Canadian military medical hospital. And in those conditions, these miracle workers, in terms of the surgeons and the nurses, bringing these wounded men out of the, the uh, Western Front and back to these hospitals, and magically, miraculously saving them, only to lose them to infection because there was nothing to prevent all of the evil aspects of a military battlefield, i.e. mostly farm fields and the manure that had been there for centuries, Ugh. from infecting those horribly uh, difficult wounds to protect. Right. So this great surgery was going for naught. Jim, you've got a question for Ted? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times I just get it from, you know, movies, you know, the information, never sure what's real. If the enemy, let's say, saw an opposing army's medic on the battlefield, would they avoid targeting them or, you know, as a, as a mutual respect kind of thing, or is that just kind of Hollywood magic? No, it's a really good question, Jim, because prior to uh, the Second World War, something called the Geneva Conventions had been in effect, and that was a charter, if you like, that had been signed by all the European nations that recognized that anybody who was not armed, and that's emphatic, not armed, not bearing a weapon, and also wearing some sort of medical insignia. Like a Red Cross? Yeah. That they were immune to fire. They were not to be attacked. Well, when the war really changed in the Second World War in between 1940 and 41 from what was essentially a phony war into a very hot war, all bets were off. And you'd find, particularly in the Pacific, many of the American medics stripped off any medical insignia whatsoever. And, and many of the medics whom I met and spoke with and, and, and interviewed and corresponded with told me that in the Second World War from about 1942 on, their first job was not to save lives but to protect the wounded. And that meant bearing arms. So that meant that they were like every other soldier. Wow. So it really depended on when and where. But... By the middle of the war, the Germans and the, and the Japanese imperial forces didn't care what you were wearing. You were a target. Oh, my God. The bravery. Like just trying to picture ourselves in that situation. Yeah. Imagine yourself 18, 19 years old or 20, and, and some of the medical officers who were 25 or 28 were considered old men and old women. To be right. Honest. And and you think they're they're over there? They're trying to do a job, and then they're handed a, a weapon, saying, "Oh, by the way, you've got another job on top of your." your but maybe they. Uh, but I, my sense is, uh, Jim, that they took it. They took on that task willingly, knowing what the odds were of survival. Yeah, you said and, you said and, old old men and old women were women. Was that the first role they had in the military? Too was medics, or, or were they soldiers before that? Um, well, women on the on the Allied side um, were not placed in um, frontline positions. There were nurses. Oh, okay. Um, there would be medical orderlies and ambulance drivers. I've got some great stories of ambulance drivers. A young woman in Vancouver who had the first driver's license in Vancouver uh, prior to the First World War, the first car owned by a woman <laughs> in Vancouver. <laughs> and she puts herself up, suggests that, that to the Red Cross in Canada and in Britain that she could serve as an ambulance driver. They both turned her down. She paid her own way to get to Britain, managed to get to see the man who was the uh, uh, head of the uh, war effort in, in Britain for Canada, actually went to, to a meeting with him. Um, and, and confronted him about her abilities, and would she be allowed to serve? He turned her down. Well, oddly after that, the, all of the rules changed. The ambulance drivers, uh, mostly had been men to that point, were, were told that you can better serve the war effort on the front lines. The driver's seats of the ambulances opened, 
and she had a chance. Her name was Grace McPherson. She began to serve behind the lines. Her first night on duty was the first day of the Battle of Vimy Ridge in April. Uh, and put her on the $5 bill. Yes, you're <laughs> yeah, absolutely no right. I, I have goosebumps. I've got tears welling up in my eyes. Uh, it's Your books are, are such an important piece of military history, including the latest Rush to Danger. If, if you've got a teenager... You know, you got to share these stories. It's the only way we truly remember what people put themselves through to protect our freedoms. Find out more about Ted. Read some of uh, his, his writing and, and uh, check out all his books at tedbarris.com. Uh, we were just talking about medics in the line of fire. Rush to Danger was the book that you uh, released last year. Your father inspired the book. He was a military medic. He was, and yet, like so many veterans, he hid the story from me. Um, I had to, and, and oddly, we were very close, my dad and I, and good friends, and both writers. And eventually, uh, as I grew from a teenager uh, with just sort of naive, uh, inquisitive questions, you know, what did you do in the dad in the war, dad? What did you do in the war, dad? I just sort of let it go. But then, as adults, I began to wheedle more of it out of him. My dad was born in the United States. His name was Alex Barris, and for some of your older listeners or their parents or grandparents, they'll remember Alex Barris as a broadcaster and a newspaper journalist in this country, very well-known, front-page challenge, and so on and so forth. But as a young man, he was a New Yorker. He signed up because the draft called on him, and he said, you know, put me where you want me. I, I have no particulars because he was, a, you know, he was a, working with his family as a, in a sewing machine operation. They made him. Maybe that had something to do with why they made him a medic. He could, you know, handle. He knew so, stitches, yeah. yeah. <laughs> why not sutures? Anyway, um, off he goes to war, and he ends up in the Battle of the Bulge, which was the uh, battle that took place in the winter, the last year of the war, the winter of 1945, when the Germans broke out from Germany back into the Ardennes, nearly trying to push the Allies back into the sea through Belgium and, and the Netherlands. And they nearly succeeded in doing it until the Canadians and the British and the Americans stopped them. And my dad's job as a medic there was to help push the forces, the Germans, back. And at a little place called Camp Holtz Woods, in February of 1945, my dad, who was a sergeant and responsible for about, oh, maybe 30 men in his platoon, suddenly realized that four of his stretcher bearers were missing. He'd sent them out to the battlefront to bring back wounded. And at the end of the day, they hadn't shown up. So in the night, making, weaking, you know, just managing just managing to get through some of the minefields that were there in Germany, gets back into the forest, finds the four guys, and brings them out. And I had no idea he'd done this until uh, nearly he, he had passed away. And I found his records and a citation for a bronze star. And that bronze star represented his work right through the war, but in particular the night in saving those four guys. Wow. That's incredible. It's in your blood, I guess. I mean, he must... You talk about how veterans hide their stories and how you have to work to get some of these stories out. Why is that, Ted? Well, we're a different culture in Canada than anywhere else, and, and we're, we're not known for being warriors. I remember when I was a kid in the 50s and 60s going through school, uh, we always heard about Canada's peacekeeping efforts, which were honorable and important, but we never heard about Canada's role in the wars of times past. And so it's only been since the 70s that we've started to explore that. And so more of the veterans have felt the need and in, indeed the honor of stepping forward and telling their stories. And maybe to a certain extent, making sure that the details are accurate, because they've been so quiet. They haven't been boastful like Americans and British about military history in their past. So part of it is getting the record straight. Part of it is that reluctance. 
part of it is also, this is, you'll find this, I'm sure, likely to be true in, among your own broadcasting backgrounds. You can probably open up a stranger more quickly and more readily than a relative. Mm. When you talk to somebody about something serious in your family, it's hard for them to reveal it, to, to sort of show that vulnerability. But if you, as a, as a stranger, a broadcaster, goes forward and talks to them and asks them questions, somehow it's different, hmm. and they reveal more. And they recognize that at the end of the interview, you pack up your gear and disappear, never to be seen again, and you're going to respect their story. But they don't have to deal with the face-to-face contact that telling this very difficult story would have been to a family member. So somehow... We who've taken up that role, that picked up the torch to tell these stories, have found it more easily done because the veterans are welcome. They will welcome a stranger more than they will welcome a son or a granddaughter who asks the question, what did you do? I'm glad you had the opportunity before your dad passed to find that out about him. That's a pretty special thing. It is. And thank you to your father for what he did. I could listen to Ted Barris tell stories for hours and hours, but I know you've probably got a busy one. Uh, Remembrance Day this year, a lot different than years past with a lot of ceremonies going virtual. What does the day have in store for you, Ted? Well, later this morning, um, I'm going to be traveling to from my home in Uxbridge, uh, northeast of Toronto, to Hamilton, where the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum is located. And every year for probably the last 25 or 30 years, they've had a remembrance event inside the museum. In fact, the Lancaster, which you, you see periodically flying around Ontario, will fly over the museum at precisely 11 o'clock. And generally speaking, they cram anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000 people into the hangar to be there for that ceremony. And, and I've had the honor, the privilege of speaking, telling different stories depending on the year um, that relate to Remembrance Day. Today, or you know, when we gather uh, for the event uh, for broadcast, uh, there will just be the broadcast team and the wreath layers and the padre and an MC and me, and there won't be anybody there. We'll be talking to the broadcast audience, CHCH Television. I hope you don't mind my, my mentioning. No, absolutely. I think it's important people know about it. And and but it is very strange because normally there's that wonderful energy in the audience that's brought to it by the veterans. We've, we've had veterans in these gatherings in their 100 years or 100. Was like the woman from the, I can't remember her name, Florence something. She was 103. <laughs> wow. And, and when, when the, the, the remembrance event takes that moment to pause to recognize the veterans in the audience, the place is electric because there's that power of their stories, of their heroism, of their modesty. Uh, of their their connection with their community. And then there's lots of young people there who are discovering this for the first time. And you can relate to this because you guys are young. This is a lot of <laughs> what would otherwise be considered... Thank you, Ted. <laughs> well, younger than I am. What What's remarkable is that for a younger generation, younger than I am, uh, I'm 71, and um, my sense is that most of you look at the Second World War as it's ancient history. It's like Roman Empire times, and that's, you know, it's not relatable. But the minute that you get to see the images that I present and others present of young men and women who served in the Second World War, for example, and their faces are of 18 and 22-year-olds, and you make sure that the young people in the audience don't think of veterans as the people tottering and frail and in their last years standing in the audience, but the images on the screen of the people who served, who were like they are, yeah, teenagers. That could be me. How, how, what would I have done if I was 
presented with uh, with the reality of a war where I had to go and possibly sacrifice my life for my country. It really is a humbling, sobering thing to think about. It is, and 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 when you when that light goes on, when the young people in the audience there at the Warplane Heritage Museum who won't be there today, but hopefully will be watching on television, but when they get it, when that light goes on, it's it's a miraculous thing. Be- they begin to recognize what it was they did, why it was important, and why Canada has such a central role in these incredible pieces of history. Ted, you've got a central role in making sure those stories are passed on. So many amazing books. The latest, Rush to Danger, is fantastic. And the next book, when when are we expecting it to come out? Well, if I have some audiences left (laughs) to speak to, I'm hoping a year from now a new book on the Battle of the Atlantic, which is the story of the Navy's uh, managing to ferry the convoys from North America to Britain and keep uh, Britain alive and the war effort alive from 19... It was, it was the longest siege of the war. It began the day the war began in September of 1939, and it went until the end of the war in Europe on May the 8th, 1945. The longest battle of the Second World War was the Battle of the Atlantic, and that's the story I'm writing up now. It's, it's virtually done. The book will be out, I hope, a year from now, and we can talk then about some of the great stories from the Atlantic. TedBarris.com if you want to uh, learn more. And you mentioned that the crowds aren't going to be there. It's going to be different. Hopefully the veterans and those currently serving watching those broadcasts still get to feel the gratitude that this country has for them. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you have done if you have served or you continue to serve. Taz and Jim, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for checking out the Taz and Jim podcast. If you want to listen to us the old-fashioned way, live on the radio, you can do that on FM 96 in London or Y108 in Hamilton weekday mornings from 5.30 until 9.30. Or subscribe, keep downloading the podcasts, and we'll keep talking.